I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Mann. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Not just horror, but terror. A judge rules that the man who killed members of a London, Ontario Muslim family by driving his truck into them isn't just a murderer, he's a terrorist. Connecting the dots, Oklahoma police say a non-binary teenager didn't die of their injuries after a violent incident in a school bathroom. But an advocate draws a clear line between state lawmakers' rhetoric and what happened to Nex Benedict. A shared loss, a shared drive to win. When her husband was imprisoned, Belarus's opposition leader Svetlana Tikhonovskaya became a prominent voice of political dissent. She'll tell us about talking to Alexei Navalny's widow, who's now doing the same. Show him the money. It was easy to prove a high-profile Trump supporter was wrong when he said he had evidence of a rigged election. But a Republican cybersecurity expert says collecting the $5 million reward he was promised is proving much trickier. Riding bareback while riding bareback. An Australian equestrian sees more long faces than usual in his sport when he appears on his horse wearing a mankini. And wagged her gait. Newly revealed documents show just how much President Biden's dog, Commander, has really been sinking his teeth into his role and into dozens of members of Secret Service staff. As it happens, the Thursday edition, Radio That Knows Politics, makes strange bite fellows. Today, Justice Renee Pomerantz ruled that the attack that killed four members of a Muslim family in London, Ontario, was an act of terrorism. Three generations of the Ufsaw family were out for a walk when an attacker deliberately drove into them with his truck. He killed family matriarch Talat, her son Salman, and his wife Medea, and their 15-year-old daughter Yumna. Yumna's younger brother survived the attack. Here's Crown Prosecutor Sarah Sheikh speaking after the ruling today. Justice Pomerantz is ruling today that the murders and the attempted murder constitute terrorist activity is a very important one. It is an acknowledgement that the offender's attack was not only targeted and directed towards the Afsal family, it was also targeted and directed towards the entire Muslim community. And it was designed to intimidate Muslims. It was also an attack on values that we as Canadians hold very dear. Inclusiveness, community, decency and multiculturalism. As Her Honor stated today, terrorist activity seeks to overthrow social order. As such, it must be denounced in the strongest possible terms. Sabur Khan is a friend of the Afsal family and works with the London chapter of the Muslim Association of Canada. He was in the courtroom this morning. We reached him today in London. Sabur I can imagine a day like this is very difficult for people who knew the Afzal family as well as you did. Uh, I'm just wondering if you can describe the moment for us when you heard Justice Pomerantz call this attack an act of terrorism. 
Well, yes, it has been a difficult and painful journey for many of us who were very close to Davzal family. They were truly wonderful people. Um, and hearing those words, you know, definitely gave us some sense of comfort and some um, uh, relief because this is not just against our Muslim community. This is not just against the London community. This act was against our entire Canadian system of values and how we work together and how we live in in respect of one another. And her recognizing that and speaking to that and the impact that his actions have had and classifying it as a terror attack, um, you know, that was a huge relief. The judge's wording was really unequivocal. She said one could say this was a textbook case of terrorist activity. It, did you expect her words to be so strong? I honestly um, didn't know what to expect. Um, uh, but I was very pe- pleasantly surprised when I heard that she classified it that way. And her decision not to name this person who has now been convicted and to go in depth about the harm that he has caused. Um, it was surprising to hear that. I, I didn't expect it as, as strongly as she did, mm-hmm. um, and, but it was comforting. The judge uh, made specific mention of the, the victim impact statements that were provided during the trial. Uh, you yourself gave two of those statements. Can you share with us uh, some of what you told the court? Yeah, we shared two impact statements. One was uh, me as a community leader here um, in London, Ontario, and one was in our personal capacity. My whole family were very close uh, with the family growing up. Uh, in the community statements, we talked about how, you know, we have seen across the whole community uh, a sense of uh, fear, a sense of discomfort and um, paranoia and being othered. But at the same time, we talked about how there has been such great support from the broader, broader community. There has been a coming of together um, within the Muslim community and within the broader community. Canadian community in in jointly and unequivocally stating that this is this is not who we are. You know, you you mentioned you were close to the family. Your family was close to the family. I'm just wondering your thoughts today. How you are remembering uh, the people who died? Well, there's two aspects of it uh, to me. As I was sitting in the court and listening to the judge, um, especially when she spoke about. Uh, the young boy who survives and his his impact statement um, and and the huge gap that this has left in his life. Um, uh, he is orphaned. He has lost his sister and his parents and his grandmother and his sense of what is normal for every other child. Um, and and that really shook me. Um, um, in a new way, because the way the judge was able to present it, uh, uh, it, it struck me in another new way. And similarly, some of the other victim uh, impact statements that she uh, shared excerpts from, um, again, just kind of refreshed my sort of wounds, if you want to call it. 
Um, mm. But on the other hand, today was a relief for me. Today was a day where I realized that we are in this together. As, as long as we're together, as long as we're united as a Canadian community, and we identify clearly what is wrong is wrong, and we take the measures needed to, to stop that, that is a huge thing. Uh, and the way justice, uh, the justice today, uh, she she delivered her sentence, um, brought a lot of relief and comfort to me and to the people I was speaking to and to my family. Among those there today were relatives of the Afzal family. What is your sense of how they are processing this decision? I saw some tears among them, um, and I'd imagine for them this is a permanent thing that they have to deal with. It's it's a journey that will never end. I think what I also saw was uh, an appreciation of the support that they have had and the appreciation that, you know, justice is there. Some family members spoke today after the sentencing. We want to play a little bit of what Madiha Salman's mother had to say today. Let, let's take a listen. For us, the journey of healing continues. The scars, physical and emotional, will remain. But we choose not to reply to hate with more hate. We choose to honor the memory of our family by fighting for a world where such tragedies never have to happen again. The terrorism designation acknowledges the hate that fueled this fire, the ugliness that took the lives of Talat, Salman, Madiha, and Yumna. But this hate didn't exist in a vacuum. We must confront the hate, not just condemn it. What message do you hope Canadians take from from that statement? I personally take a couple of messages. One, how strong this woman and this family has been. Despite their tremendous loss, uh, their commitment to Canada, their commitment to our Canadian values, and their commitment to... Uh, standing for what we need to do to to protect that moving forward is something that always moves me. And uh, her her point about emphasizing that we need to address the hate, I think that's a responsibility for every single Canadian. We have a collective responsibility. Hate is never something that should be accepted. Sabur, thank you for talking with us today. My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Sabur Khan is a friend of the Afzal family. We reached him today in London, Ontario. Like so much about their life, why and how Next Benedict died has become politicized. The Oklahoma teenager's family says they identified as non-binary and that they died the day after an altercation in an Owasso High School girl's bathroom left them badly beaten. Nexus grandmother Sue Benedict says the grade 10 student had been bullied for over a year because of their gender identity. And the bullying got worse after Oklahoma's governor signed a bill requiring students to use bathrooms matching the sex listed on their birth certificates. But yesterday, police in Owasso said Nex did not die as a result of their injuries. And now Nex's family has announced it's conducting a separate, independent investigation. Kylan Durant is the president of the Oklahoma Pride Alliance. We reached him in Oklahoma City. 
Kylan, what went through your mind when you heard the news of Nexus' death? Honestly, just total disbelief at first. It just it's that kind of young life being ripped away in such a way is just so shocking and devastating that you just just start to question how what and then then it when you're in a state like Oklahoma you just your mind just immediately starts to think like I am I know how you know um but it doesn't make it any less devastating shocking heartbreaking as you know, police are saying Next did not die from injuries sustained at Owasso High School. Um, yes. How does that shape your view of, of what happened to Next? You know, I've talked about this with community members, and it just feels... The, the information being so delayed as it was to then hear that that is what is being said just feels like something we've experienced before when such injustice is happening. It, it makes it feel like it's hard to trust officials and authorities. There there had been several days that this had uh, passed, and then we started hearing hearing about it. And it, it was, you know, we quickly learned um, there were not, this was not reported that, um, Authorities were not called. Um, it's just it brings a lot. It brings in a lot of questions. Yeah, the altercation um, at the school occurred on the seventh of February, and next died yeah. on February eighth. Um, yeah. po- police say that they are awaiting toxicology results and some other ancillary tests. The full autopsy, though, was completed. It, would you have any reassurance if you were able to see the full results of that autopsy? Absolutely. I think everyone's kind of waiting on seeing, you know, we've, we've been told to wait for the facts, so we want to see the facts. You said earlier that living in a state like Oklahoma changes how you experience a death like this one. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, in Oklahoma, we have had a lot of legislation come through within the last couple of years, specifically targeting the trans community and trans youth. Um, and the rhetoric that we hear on the floor regarding the existence of trans people is just astounding. You know, we have a situation now where Ryan Walters, who is heading up education in Oklahoma, and um, he invites somebody who is in charge of a platform called Lives of TikTok that has a pretty... I guess, hateful following that any sort of mention of trans youth supporting that, um, the the following attacks. And this was a situation in which um, an Owasso teacher was, you know, featured on Lives of TikTok. And, you know, their following went after that teacher and that teacher had to leave that public school system, same school system where a non-binary student has died and it just it's just hard for me not to draw the line of we're seeing our leaders say and do things that do not support our queer youth and here we are in which uh this this student 
experienced a situation in which they were attacked and harmed for for identity and so it just it just feels like you have created a situation in which this this um very real um consequence happened I just want to clarify, you said that something about this person who's the head of education. This is the state superintendent of public instruction that you're talking about, saying these things yeah. that you say are are targeting uh, trans and non-binary youth. Is that right? Yes, Ryan Walters. Then we, we see a state ban on gender-affirming care for uh, trans youth under 18. We've got sports ban bills coming through. We've got women's rights bills coming through that that seek to define uh, sex and gender. Yeah. Do you think this terrible news about what happened to Nex might somehow change some people's minds? I'm very hopeful that that is the case. I think um, death is one of those things that is very much a a common ground for people, um, especially the death of a young person. I only hope that it invites conversation to how we got here, um, because it's certainly something that we've been talking about for a long time. Um, it feels very much like we've been screaming into the void uh, that a lot of this uh, legislation and a lot of these conversations that are harmful have direct consequences. And we're humans. We're all humans. And we deserve to re- to live as our most real and authentic selves without the fear of harm and death. There are other jurisdictions that are implementing the kinds of uh, legislation that Oklahoma is, uh, including here in Canada. Um, I'm just wondering, as a, a queer person, what do you want to say to a, a kid like Nex or, or to their family members who, who might be listening? You're not alone. Um, there are queer people, even in this red state, who are very much excited to celebrate you and welcome you. There are non-queer people around you that are very much excited to celebrate you and welcome you. And we are fighting every day for the lives of you young people. And there is hope. Kylan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you speaking with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Kylan Durant is the president of the Oklahoma Pride Alliance. We reached him in Oklahoma City. Since February 7th, well over 200 million liters of raw sewage are believed to have spewed into the Red River. A broken pipe in the Winnipeg sewage system is to blame. And leaders of communities downstream are wondering why the city and the province didn't warn them sooner about the problem. Among those leaders is Gordon Blue Sky, chief of Brokenhead First Nation and chairperson of Treaty One Nations. From our own perspective here, um, this is a direct uh, infringement on our, on our rights. And this is something that we never contemplated. This is something that was never discussed, and nor did we agree to um, in terms of the, the impacts uh, stuff like this would have. Um, 
you know, I really look at the the process right now, and I, I question is is if all of this, even at the quarter of a billion raw sewage liters going into our waters right away right now, is this something that's acceptable by the province? And just so the Canadians and Manitobans know out there, these this is the waterway that we're selling fish from. These are the waterways that we're gathering fish from to feed our families. And I just don't understand how, how much more we can give as Treaty 1 people. Our lands are already totally occupied. The water that we everyone talks about coming from Shoal Lake 40, and of course there's a big group you know, defending them and, and promoting them and so on and so forth. But then when that water reaches Winnipeg, it's defecated in, it's urinated in, God knows what uh, industry does to it, and then it's put into our waterways. We've never discussed that. There's no, imp- there's no benefit to that impact that we're receiving right now. So it is a big discussion that needs to happen with the province. In terms of reconciliation, this is not something that I feel that really fits that box, and I'm, we're really concerned, and we need the action today, and, I, and I'm still waiting for a call from either level of government. That was Gordon Bluesky, Chief of Brokenhead First Nation and Chairperson of Treaty One Nations, appearing on CBC Winnipeg's noon show earlier today. The email begins in the bland, upbeat tone you'd expect from any boss. Team, as you continue to operate with the highest level of professionalism, we are trying to make things better because you deserve it. Pretty cookie cutter. But the next line gets weird. Please respond ASAP if you've been bitten by the dog. And then there's the sender's job title, Assistant Special Agent in Charge, Presidential Protection Division, U.S. Secret Service. That unusual workplace email is part of hundreds of pages of newly unsealed documents all about the danger posed to the people who protect the Bidens by their family pet, a German shepherd called Commander. The dog was exiled from the presidential orbit last fall when reports suggested Commander had bitten Secret Service agents on a dozen occasions. But that was just the tip of the iceberg, according to records obtained by researcher John Greenwald. He uses Freedom of Information Act requests to gain access to secret documents, which he makes public on his website, The Black Vault. We reached Mr. Greenwald in Los Angeles. John, reports have been out there for some time now that Commander was a biter. Um, According to these new documents, how much worse was it than we already knew? You know, it was uh, quite a bit worse. In fact, there were about two times the caseload that we previously had heard about from the U.S. media that uh, there were about 11 uh, incidents or so. And so I decided to dig in a little bit more and see what I could find. And what popped out were about uh, 23 or 24 incidents at least in the documents with uh, literally taking bites out of arms and legs and all sorts of uh, places on Secret Service agents uh, causing hospital visits and and even um, quite a few medical units for the White House that had to administer uh, uh, medical attention right then and there. So it's uh, it's quite a history and it goes back a couple years. You got some some pretty specific details about uh, some of these incidents. What stands out for you? Obviously, the more bloody, and I hate to say it that way, but the more bloody incidents really stand out. I mean, there was one incident uh, where a Secret Service agent was bit 
And, uh, and it goes even deeper than that, where they had to shut down the East Wing tours of the White House for about 20 minutes because there was blood all over the floor. So you're not talking about a little nip or, or, or a little bite that uh, is, is someone saying, ouch, and that's it. Uh, there were multiple stitches into multiple agents. So y- y- some of the incidents were, were very, very serious. This wasn't just a nippy dog, but rather one that created uh, quite a few injuries. So the fact that you were able to get these records tells us that the agents were telling their bosses they'd been bitten by commander repeatedly. Uh, what did their bosses tell them to do about it? Yeah, a lot of them went unreported. You can kind of deduce that from the documents. But yes, they were concerned and they were sending out mass mail uh, to their presidential protection division team members looking for additional accounts. In fact, one of the letters that was uh, that was sent out was on June 14th, 2023. And the next day, within 24 hours, there was yet another biting incident. They were very concerned. Yeah. So, so I gather that the agents had to develop certain strategies to try to not get attacked by, by commander. What were they doing? They were trying to keep their distance. I mean, they're not an agency that tells the president what to do. Uh, There's only very special circumstances where security takes precedence over what the president wishes. Uh, But this isn't one of those cases. Essentially, the Secret Service had to adhere to what the president uh, wanted to do, and they wanted to have commander in the White House. So they started trying to keep their distance. They had a president to protect, so they had to still do their duty. But they were starting to make those types of changes where they were wanting to to keep a certain distance away when commander was present. Because uh, some of the incidents we haven't talked about, commander would just out of the blue lunge towards the Secret Service officers or agents and, and attack without any reason whatsoever. Another incident, he wasn't leashed. And uh, the Secret Service agent heard something, turned around, and the the dog was running at him and lunged and uh, obviously uh, attacked uh, that agent as well. So they they were trying to make the best of it before the White House finally took action. Not sure why it took over uh, about two dozen cases for them to do that, but they had to adhere to what the president wanted, and that was for the dog to stay. Right. So there's there's certain protocols, I guess, in place. But but is there any indication that anyone broached the topic with the president or other members of the Biden family? In in this uh, batch of records, there's really no indicator of that. It's more the Secret Service adhering to what the the the, the you know what the president and his family wanted to do. Now, whether or not that 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 happened or not, it just may not be in these documents. I would imagine someone was saying something because you can't hide these incidents. So, uh, there was one where the president was in the room and commander attacked one of the uh, Secret Service agents and the president was right there. So obviously that in itself is a security concern over the president because, look, I've had dogs my whole life and they are the most loyal creatures you can ever have. They're amazing. But they can turn on on owners as well. So I'm sure, even though it wasn't in these documents, that was a concern to the Secret Service. Uh, I'm sure they spoke to him about it, but it wasn't anything that they were in the position to give orders about. Yeah, so this is obviously not the most pressing story involving the presidency at this point. But why do you think it's important that, that you got your hands on these documents to tell the story? Sure. No, it's absolutely not the most pressing, but I think it's always important to see how administrations are run. I think that it's always important to see well, what goes on behind closed doors. It's it's interesting to see how our government works on, on many levels. Right. Now, is this the end of your research into Commander? Did you get everything you were you're looking for in these documents? 
No, not at all. And with most FOIA requests I've done, and I've done over 10,000, there's always something else to go after. And in this particular case, I asked for not only the documents, but the visuals, the photographs, the videos, because you know that there's a lot of uh, documentation, uh, let's say, of them making sure that everything is chronicled properly, and that means photos and videos. In fact, the documents even refer to, to at least one video uh, that uh, that exists of one of these incidents. But the Secret Service conveniently ignored that part of my request. They didn't give me any photos, any videos, and they didn't even reference it. And the way the law works is, let's say they didn't want to give them to me because they fit into an exemption category, they should cite that. So I filed an appeal to see what other visuals that I can get. And here in America, we got a lot of lawsuits. So some of these agents may turn around and say, hey, we weren't well protected in our duty. This was an unneeded hazard and may create a lawsuit. And I don't stop until I uncover it all. Okay, John, thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Thank you. You too. John Greenwald is a Freedom of Information Act researcher who runs the website The Black Vault. We reached him in Los Angeles, California. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Since she became a leader in exile from her country, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya has repeated a message to people in Belarus who long for freedom. Don't lose hope. That echoes the words of Alexei Navalny, speaking in a documentary before his death in a Russian prison. My message for the uh, situation when I am killed is very simple. Not give up. That message united the two opposition activists, and now it binds Ms. Tsikhanovskaya even closer to the Navalny family. Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya and Alexei's wife Yulia were together when news of Alexei Navalny's death arrived. Yulia Navalny has now become a voice of protest in her husband's absence, just as Svetlana did in 2020 when her husband Sergei was imprisoned when trying to run for president. She stood in his place in that election. We reached Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya today in Vienna. Svetlana, you have not heard from your husband in a year now. How has the death of Alexei Navalny amplified your worry for him? You know, political prisoners uh, in any country is a huge pain for relatives, first of all, because every morning I wake up with the thoughts about my husband, uh, seeing my children growing up without their daddy, knowing that thousands of uh, Belarusian families are split by uh, this regime. And so is my husband, is already almost four years in jail, and last year he is, uh, together with other political opponents of are hold in incommunicado mode. Uh, I don't know anything about him. Lawyer is not allowed to visit him. Letters are not delivered. 
so I actually even don't know if my husband is alive. I don't know anything about him. And it's like uh, the most painful. And of course, the death of or murder uh, of Navalny, of course, it's like a green light for the potatoes without you know decisive answer of democratic world to this murder uh, it will might um, untie the hands of dictators they can kill their political opponents without any consequences and of course i even don't want to to think that uh, my husband might be the next one you are in vienna today speaking with european leaders uh, tell us about the message you have delivered to them on how they might help political prisoners like your husband and others so first of all we need to raise more attention to this problem because so many issues are happening in the world you know wars uh, cities are ruined uh, people are being killed but political prisoners they are the hostages of the regime they are uh, people who sacrificed their freedom uh, for democracy, for the values we all share. The number of political prisoners in Belarus is increasing every day. Every day, detentions are taking place in my country. Uh, I want OSCE to demand access to political prisoners, to see in what state they are. And also, uh, uh, we in Belarus have a list of people. There are about 200 names. We call it humanitarian list because people in this list are in awful health condition with cancer, with diabetes, with heart attacks, people with special needs. Uh, they are not given any medical uh, assistance in uh, prisons. People are actually dying. Uh, two days ago, one person from this list died. Let, so let, let we, me ask you about that person. His name is Ira Lednik, and, and he did have, yeah. as I understand it, a heart condition. Uh, he did die in custody. Can you tell us about him and, and who he was, what he did? So uh, he was a uh, famous Belarusian activist and uh, he was detained uh, just for his article that uh, he doesn't see any sense in uh, this Belarusian-Russian union, that Russia wants to subjugate uh, Belarus. So just for this assessment of the situation, he was detained and died for his right to speak freely you know, about what he wants. I want to uh, repeat, without any consequences for the death of Navalny, of uh, Lednik, uh, we have to be prepared for more terrible news. Uh, until the topic of political prisoners is not a problem for the regimes, for tyrants, they will not release people. When you impose sanctions on dictators, impose them for humiliating, for torturing people, for uh, abuses of human rights. So it will be like signal for them that all their uh, crimes uh, will be punished. They will have consequences. You know, if uh, the democratic world will be limited uh, by deep condolences and words of condemnation, uh, it will uh, like be, as I said before, uh, green light for further murders. So, so condolences are not enough for you. You want stronger action. At this meeting in Vienna, did you get a sense that the leaders there were willing to do that, to back up their words with action? No, I want to believe in this. I want to believe that the democratic world has uh, opened its eyes on what tyranny and uh, dictatorship is. And uh, they're ready to be uh, more decisive in their actions. Because when 
for example, Navalny died. I was in Munich Security Conference in that moment, and I met many politicians and told them the same, that uh, there should be um, consequences of uh, this murder. And they asked me, but what? We have imposed sanctions. We... Uh, launched the uh, investigation on, on uh, abduction of Ukrainian children. Uh, but I say, look, for example, let's take sanctions. It's maybe the most efficient and powerful instrument that uh, powerful democratic countries have. Uh, you left so many loopholes in the sanctions that uh, regime can easily circumvent them and continue trade uh, with the democratic world. So one hand of democracy, uh, they are trying to punish uh, the regime, the other hand, is continuing to, to feed this regime. Yes, you uh, uh, gave arrest warrant to Putin for abduction of Ukrainian children, but this murder is another crime. So continue this accountability process. Uh, launch special investigation on uh, uh, on this murder. And the same about Lukashenko. Lukashenko has a long list of crimes. Crimes against humanity, migration crisis, hijacking of airplane, uh, dragging our country into the war, abduction of Ukrainian children also on territory of Belarus. Why? Uh, his name is still not in international courts. You mentioned uh, attending the Munich Security Conference last week where you, you met with Yulia Navalnaya after she learned of her husband's death. Can, can you tell us what you said to each other? You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, the moment I would like to meet her because it was very painful. And uh, we understood each other like very clearly without even any words because we have like maybe a similar situation. Our uh, husbands were freedom fighters and uh, both were put in prison uh, for many years and for many days in punishment cells. But I saw a very strong woman at that moment who was going through her grief. But uh, she knew that she has to speak loud about what's happened, to raise awareness about this, to ring all the bells about the situation with her husband and other political prisoners. We talked about children, of course, because you know it's, it's so painful when your children like uh, growing up without their daddies. Also, after you know this Munich security conference, I have heard that uh, Julia uh, declared that she's going to take up her husband's fight. And uh, I sympathize uh, with this decision and support you as a woman and understand, you know, staying instead of your husband will bring you many challenges, uh, pain, and also fear and risks. Svetlana Tihanaskaya, thank you very much for speaking with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Svetlana Tihanaskaya is the leader of Belarus's opposition in exile. We reached her today in Vienna. Bob Zeidman has proven Mike wrong again, and ostensibly he's going to be $5 million richer for it, although if I were Mr. Zeidman, I would not hold my breath. The Mike in question here is election denier and my pillow purveyor Mike Lindell. You might remember the contest he held in 2021, which he called Prove Mike Wrong. 
offering up $5 million bucks to anyone who could disprove that he had data showing the 2020 American election had been rigged against Donald Trump. Well, Bob Zeidman voted for Mr. Trump twice, but he's also a cybersecurity expert who definitively showed that Mr. Lindell's claims of election rigging were a hoax. And yesterday, a federal judge in Minnesota upheld a previous ruling and ruled that Mike Lindell owed him the $5 million plus interest. When Neil spoke with Mr. Zeidman last year, he was skeptical that he would ever see that money. Here's part of that interview from our archives. Why did you pursue this if, if you didn't think there was going to be any money at the end of it? I've had a good career so far, and I live comfortably, and I think I have a responsibility to right wrongs, and I think this was a wrong that's causing significant damage in the American political system and American society, and I think it needs to be corrected. Is that what you were thinking? You know, if we go back to when you accepted the Prove My Wrong Challenge, were you expecting to, to disprove these claims? Like, what was your thought process? So I originally thought that nobody would be offering $5 million if they hadn't vetted the data and had a reason to believe that it was correct. And I wasn't intending to attend his symposium where he was going to release the data and the proof, but it, it could be the vetting was incorrect, but it would take months for me or longer, possibly, to examine this kind of data and figure out whether it's legitimate and what it showed. So I originally had no intention to go, but then after talking to my friends, I realized whatever happened, this was going to be historic. And why not have the opportunity to attend a historic conference where an historic claim was being made and maybe even an election would eventually be overturned based on it? So what was he claiming to have evidence of and what did you actually find? Well, Lindell was claiming publicly that these were packet captures. What he meant, and he described this in detail in different interviews and at the conference, that somehow he had obtained every packet on the Internet that was going to or from a voting machine in the United States and saw the ones coming in and out of China where votes were being changed. So that was originally what everybody expected. What we got at the conference was universally agreed, not packet capture. It had nothing to do with capturing packets. And how long did it take you to be absolutely sure that there was nothing there? There was no evidence of a rigged election? Well, we, we got some files on day one, and it took me about three hours before I started recognizing what these files were. And that's when I slipped out of the conference and walked back to the hotel and picked up the phone and called my wife and told her, asked her quietly, what do you want to do with $5 million? Uh, I, I was joking, but I really thought I had proved it. But on day two, we got a huge dump of maybe 100 gigabytes worth of files. And I thought, okay, this is the problem. They're going to keep throwing data at us. And there's no way I can examine 100 gigabytes of data. But on the third day, I thought, when were these files created? And I found that most of them were created right before the conference. So in other words, just to make it very clear for our listeners, if they were created just before the conference, they would have had nothing to do with the actual election. Exactly. The, the election had been a year and a half prior to the conference. If it was so fake, so transparently incorrect, why do you think Lindell would stake $5 million on this? You know, that's a big question, and there's some people who are just, uh, they're bamboozled. They're somebody, in this case, somebody sold Lindell this fake data for a lot of money, 
And in a, an example of cognitive dissonance, he, he forced himself to believe that. That's one explanation. Uh, but the other explanation is that he believes that Trump needs to be president by whatever means possible. So he, he doesn't care if it's real or not, because the end result is what's, is what's necessary. And people will do these claims, you know, put out these contests like the $5 million contest. This has happened before. I've seen this. Because people assume it's legitimate. Because why would someone offer $5 million if it wasn't real? So it actually is a deterrent for people examining the data. Why waste my time? Cybersecurity expert Bob Zeidman speaking with Neil last April. Australians love their swimwear. They wear swimsuits all the time, to the beach, of course, but also to run errands you know, around the house, to the theater. Oh, and on a horse. Last weekend, Australian equestrian and three-time Olympic medalist Shane Rose rode his horse while wearing a G-string bikini, or mankini. He did it for an event where he wore three different costumes, a gorilla suit, a Duffman beer costume from The Simpsons, and the mankini. And oddly enough, given Australia's renowned embrace of small, snug men's bathing suits in most contexts, the mankini was the problem. After receiving a complaint, Equestrian Australia temporarily barred him from competing. The ban was short-lived, and Shane Rose has now been cleared of any wrongdoing. We reached him in Sydney, Australia. Shane, how does it feel to ride a horse wearing only a mankini? Well, it's not the most comfortable experience. <laughs> Is that an understatement? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think a mankini is not a comfortable thing to wear when you're standing up, and then when you get on a horse, it's it's less so. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up deciding to wear it in the first place? Uh, it, it was a bit of a funny story that uh, one of our good friends, uh, our team vet's a, um, a Greek man, and he's he's quite hair, and he's, he's told stories about wearing it in the past out to a fancy dress do and sort of scaring the, the locals, and uh, I, I went to impersonate. I thought I'd impersonate him and put a hairy suit on and the mankini and came into the the arena with uh, Zorba the Greek music playing in the background, pretending to be him. And then I thought, well, I can't pretend to be someone else and not do it myself. So then I sort of had to muscle up and take off the the hairy suit and go in as a skinny little white boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of people got to see a lot of the skinny little white boy. Yeah, yeah, no, I think there was like, wow, you're wearing that on a horse? <laughs> Crazy man. Now, Equestrian Australia received a complaint and had to see if that you, you had broken their code of conduct. What do you think that someone actually complained about this costume? Uh, I think this is probably the most disappointing thing is that one random um, keyboard warrior has probably tried to create some trouble and, and created all this trouble themselves i think if you if you're actually complaining about something you probably go to the person or the 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 venue or or potentially to the federation but you don't go straight to the sports commission and the integrity unit and voice a concern with them if you're not trying to find trouble i think so that for me it's probably the most disappointing thing is that some some nameless person can create all this drama this had, though, potentially major implications for you. How worried were you that it might affect your path to the Paris Olympics? I, that was probably the most um, nerve-wracking thing, is that I, I'm off to an event in New Zealand in, in just a week or two, 
uh, I leave in a week and the competition's in two weeks. So if I were to be sort of spent, suspended or held up for just a short period of time, it could have really impacted my pro- my program. I mean, this is probably the most important part of getting selected for and, and qualified for Paris. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, was nerv- it was a nervous time for a week or so or, um, or whilst this was all sort of going on. But um, very relieved to be able to, you know, continue on as planned. You you got a lot of, of shows of support from your, your fellow Olympians. The Australian equestrian Matt Williams said on Facebook, quote, Shane's Mankini was a great example of someone willing to do what it takes to entertain and strum up publicity in what is otherwise a very boring industry to the outside world. Was this to strum up publicity that you did this? Oh, absolutely not. My intention was literally to give a few people um, a laugh at the time at, at the event. And the fact that it that got so much publicity is you know, quite mind-boggling that it would go as far as it did. Were you expecting you'd get such a show of support, I guess, not just from him, but from uh, sponsors and, and, I guess, fans as well? That, that's the thing that I found most remarkable is how quickly and how many people... Apparently, there was a, a petition going around uh, getting signatures, and there were more signatures on the petition than there are members in our federation. So... To get that much support from not not only the people who know me, but the people uh, of Australia who, who really sort of said, "Come on, enough's enough. Why don't you just have a bit of fun?" And have we lost our sense of humour? Um, that was that was really quite warming, really. I understand one of the event sponsors actually threatened to, to give mankinis to all attendees next year. Yeah, no, apparently so. And and anyone that wears one, they're going to give. $100 for every person to, to men's health. So I think um, I think they're right behind the cause, really. <laughs> well, something's good has got to come out of this, I suppose. Uh, you po- posted an apology that Equestrian Australia said it took into account when it did ultimately decide to clear you, so you, you can go ahead. Um, you have since deleted the apology, so that leaves us wondering, what was the purpose of, of making the apology in the first place? Were you, were you being sincere? Oh, absolutely. A friend of mine who I respect um, uh, said that maybe if I take the post down, it might sort of quieten things down because it's sort of within a couple of hours, there were thousands of people and the sort of this sort of um, backlash sort of happened. So I thought if I took the apology down and just to quieten this sort of whole thing down might sort of make it go away a bit quicker. But um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm a, if I did offend someone, legitimately I absolutely apologize for that but um as it turns out i'm not sure that the person was actually overly offended just trying to be a troublemaker do you think a horse can be embarrassed (laughs) i'm sure they can but hopefully not too much by me (laughs) (laughs) your horse might have forgiven you then yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've ridden him a few times since, and he seems to be none, none the worse for wear. So no more mankinis for you? Yeah, I would suggest they'll be staying well away for, for quite some time. All right. Shane, thank you so much. No problems. Thanks for having me on. Shane Rose is an Australian equestrian and three-time Olympic medalist and mankini wearer, uh, one time anyway. We reached him in Sydney, Australia.
You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after Your World Tonight. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helen Mann. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.